Uh, we're in a summer series that we have entitled My Heart Cries Out. We're two weeks from ending that, then we're going to do a week on vision, and then throughout the fall we're going to be in the Gospel of John. One of the key distinctives of our church is that we believe that Jesus is at the center of Christianity. We want to be able to explore the historical reality of His presence, even if you're not a Christian. Even if you're somebody who's been on the outside of faith for some time, you realize that Jesus is a very important part in demarking or demarcation in human history. I mean, in so many senses, human history is divided uh, from before his arrival and after his arrival. And so there's something intriguing, even if you're outside of Christianity, as to who this person is. And so we want to be a community where you can wrestle well, where you are free to ask questions. And where even when we're in a series entitled, My Heart Cries Out, and it's not in one of the, the autobi or the biographical sections of Jesus' life, one of the Gospels, we're always going to take you to the centerpiece of Christianity. We're always going to get you to Jesus. So even though we're in Psalm 127 today, we're consistently going to be looking at what difference does he make, not only in the psalm, but as I understand the psalm, interpret it in light of his arrival. What, is he, what difference does he make? And so we've got two weeks left. I'm excited about Psalm 127, but let me get us started. There's an Old Testament commentator. His name is Derek Kidner, and he writes at the beginning of his commentary on Psalm 127. He says this, one of the most telling features of this short poem is that it singles out three of our most universal preoccupations, building, security, and raising a family. And it makes us ask what they all amount to and to whom we owe them. Think about that quote for a minute. Let's leave it on the screen. We are each and all of us builders, building different things. Some of you are building homes, you're building careers, you're building relationships, you're building families. And all of us value security because we want to be able to protect that which we are building. And then, of course, for all of their glorious mess and glorious dysfunction, God has placed us within families, and this is the place where we learn to view and to see the world. And yet Psalm 127 evokes another layer of questions for us. It says, what is it all for? All the building, all the security, all of this uh, uh, emphasis on family. What is the real source of it all? And if I understand a biblical source, a gospel source, could it make a difference in my life? So the two things I'm going to take you through today as we unpack Psalm 127. Number one, if you're a note taker, the spirit of restlessness. We're going to look at that in part one. And then part two, we're going to look at the gift of rest. So the spirit of restlessness and the gift of rest. Of rest. Under the first part, spirit of restlessness. Let me jump in. I'm always a bit perplexed by this story. It's in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is having a conversation with a family that he seems to have a great relationship with. They have a brother named Lazarus, but the two sisters' names are Mary and Martha. And this particular family holds a dear place in Jesus' life. The reason that detail is given to us is because Jesus was a real person. Jesus had real relationships, Jesus had real struggles. But on this occasion, Jesus is going through a particular town. Martha notices that Jesus is passing through. He inv she invites Jesus into her home, into her family's home. Probably serves tea and biscuits, wants to do a British theme that day. And so Jesus comes over for coffee or tea, and she just uh, invites him into her home. And the text tells us that Martha is running around, quote, distracted with much serving. She's doing a lot for Jesus. She's excited that he said yes. So she's got a lot on her mind. She is busy. She is distracted with much serving. And Martha's sister, Mary, simply, simply sits at Jesus' feet. 
she's not helping out Martha. And Martha does not like this. She gets a little bit irritated, a little bit frustrated. You probably had this experience where you're wanting to kind of get things done. Somebody's just kind of relaxing while you're working. And so I love the relationship that they have. She gets upset. She goes over to Jesus and she says to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me then. Now, when she gets to heaven, she's going to laugh because she's going to be like, man, I told Jesus what to do. I just told God what to do. I need my sister to kind of get up and serve you and your disciples. Tell her to help me then. To which Jesus replies, Martha, when he says somebody's name twice, you need to really listen. And he says her name twice. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good portion which will not be taken away from her. What he essentially says to her it's okay. In fact, it's actually better for you to rest. It's better. Now, aside from the fear of COVID, let me take you to the beginning, 18 months ago. Aside from the fear of COVID, those early months of our pandemic, for many, brought this clear message to the forefront. And the message was, I have needed to slow down for a long time. I remember being in the backyard with Danielle. We're not sure how long this is going to last. Are we having church this week? Am I recording this week? All of us are figuring out life. But there was a moment where we're kind of saying to each other, I appreciate the slowdown. I've needed this for some time. That does not minimize the fear. Please don't hear this pastor saying that and the danger and the people who were sick, people who passed away, people who are in the medical industry, in the hospitals, a lot of, a big time of fear. But there was also this sense of relief because the entire world slowed down. I mean, we would have had serious FOMO if just you or your neighborhood or your school slowed down. Because you've been looking out at the world going, man, they're all getting ahead. The kids are still in sports. There's still all these activities. We can't slow down. But when the world slowed down, there was this sense of relief that nobody else is getting ahead. We all get to stop. Everyone was slowing. Now, as North County San Diegans, the lanes that we run in are fast-paced, literally and figuratively. Some of you have passed me on the way to church. I have seen you trying to get here very quickly. Very few of you drive on the right side of the highway. Most of you are on the left side of the highway because you got places to go. You are achieving things. You're way out front. I know how you drive. I know how you live. I know what it means even though we live in Southern California. The reality is we spend a lot of time in the Upper Northeast where it is fast-paced. But when I've come to this city, though we're chill and we like tacos and we're on the beach, you guys are moving fast. You've got things to achieve. You're moving forward. You are driven and this theme of drivenness and ambition actually has a big part to do with Psalm 127. We live in a restless world of ambition and drive. And I think drivenness is just a, world that we, a word that we have baptized in order to condone kind of a frantic pace of life. Oh, that person, they're just driven. Really what you're saying is they're a workaholic and they're pushing hard. Now let me say up front, Christianity in Psalm 127 does not condemn ambition. Ambition is not the issue in Psalm 127 in and of itself. Let me give you a couple of examples of why. We might find ourselves encouraging and promoting ambition in young women of color, for example. We might view ambition with suspicion in white men who work on Wall Street. See, there's a tension and there's a nuance to this theme of ambition and drivenness, and there's a complexity to it, we have to dive in. The issue isn't ambition in and of itself. But there are questions that accompany our restlessness and our drivenness 
and our work. And the questions may be simply, why am I driving so hard? Why am I always on the left side of the highway? What am I aiming at? And think of this question, what do I love when I'm aiming for achievement? What does my heart love in that moment? The great preacher John Piper, he comments that when we grow up, we are all going to have to work for our bread. And we can either do so nervously and anxiously, rarely at rest, always worried about the opinions of other people, or we can do so with a peace and a joy that comes from a perspective of trust in a God who promises, I am going to build the house. In fact, one of the signs that you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, is that the restless toil, it starts to change, it starts to dissipate. This restlessness is not intended to be a part of his following. We're going to unpack that. In Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 11, near the beginning of the Bible, there's this famous story of the Tower of Babel. You may be familiar with this story, at least aspects of it. And in Genesis chapter 11, you find society is advancing, but morality has become stagnant. And the people in the story in Genesis 11, they've come into the land of Shinar. They want to build a city. They want to build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. They literally want to create a name for themselves. But if you go into the details of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, there is no reference to God. There's no seeking of his will. There's no prayer. There's no fasting to kind of see if they can listen to what God wants for them. There's no aspect of worship that positions God as the king. For all intents and purposes, the people literally wanted to build their own house. They wanted to watch over their own city. You see this fierce independence welling up in Genesis chapter 11. But the reality is God wasn't in the project. God wasn't in the story. God isn't even part of the conversation. And so you have all of these people trying to accomplish something. The building of a city and the establishment of a tower and the erection of a name. But God's not in the project. And so in Genesis 11, the project breaks down very quickly. The people are scattered. Their hope for community, it dissipates. It's gone. But what's unique is if you go just a couple of verses later, we are introduced to, at that point in the story, an unknown man. We know nothing about his family. His name is Abraham. He has a barren wife. And God is going to pull this man out of obscurity. He's going to empower him. He's going to have a covenant with him. He is going to build a pan-national family from a guy that we've never even heard of. So you've got a city over here saying, we want a great name, but God's not in the project. You've got a guy who's unknown with a wife who's barren, late in age, and God builds something incredible. The juxtaposition is so important. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. See, what's at stake is our attitude toward God, not necessarily our attitude towards work. Either we are completely independent or as human beings we are entirely dependent. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says that our security and our accomplishments are actually from God. Let me say that again. Our security and our accomplishments are from him, even if he uses your personality and your giftedness and your education and your background and your family in order for you to achieve those accomplishments in life. As modern people, this is very difficult for us to wrestle with. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, admitting my accomplishments are God's gift is a bittersweet thing to do. It stings at first because it humbles, but then it is so very sweet and brings such peace. It's not up to me. And it never was. 
But if you're like me, and I think you are, you are hardwired to produce and to achieve. On our best days, we stand proud, we stand tall, we want the credit for building the house, for getting the job, for getting the girl, for having the family. But Psalm 127 says it's either up to God or it's entirely on your shoulders. In a great book written by Mark Buchanan on Sabbath rest, he says, there's no rest for those who don't believe God is good and God is sovereign. If God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called to his purposes, you can relax. If he doesn't, start worrying. If God can take any mistake, any mishap, any wastage, any wreckage, any anything, and choreograph beauty and meaning from it, then you can take a day off. If he can't, get busy. Either God's always at work, watching the city, building the house, or you need to try harder. Either God is good and in control, or it all depends on you. See, Christianity says that you are not at the center. Hallelujah. You're not at the center. God is. See, and unless he builds the house, then all of my plans for building, they're going to fall apart. Unless God is building this church called Trinity that we started about two and a half years ago, then let's just get out of the way. If he's not in it, then I don't want to be a part of it. If he's not part of this sermon, if this is all about me, then you're in a heap of trouble. This is about him using his word to get to your life and your heart to maybe transform your mind so that you see that there is a real God at the center of this thing called life. Unless God is at the center, unless God is part of your Monday meetings and your family and all of the dreams, then what are we dreaming about? Psalm 127 goes out of, it way, out of its way to say there's either or, but there's no in between. Either God is building or it's all vanity. It's another word for saying futile, like what's the point? What's it for? If there is a God, then I want to be a part of what he's doing. If there is no God, then it's all on you and it doesn't matter. But if there is a God, then we have to position him in a way to say, I believe you're good. I want to trust you. All of these plans, it's not about me. It's about you. And I position you back at the center. Let's go to this section that seems disjointed at first. You got kind of the first half of the psalm, and then the second half, it talks briefly about family. Psalm 127 goes out of, out of its way to say that all of the best things in life are gifts. All of the best things are gifts. They come from Him. Security, fulfillment, and even family. Verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Let me just say a little brief note here. This is not insinuating that children can be earned. Our good behaviors don't earn us large families. How come? It's because God doesn't do contract work. We don't enter into a contract with God. You see what I've done? See what I've accomplished? See how good I am? See how moral I am? See how obedient I am? Can you give me the desires of my life and my heart? God does not work like that. That's called religion. That's called morality. Christianity is different. Sometimes we equate Christianity with morality. Morality puts the emphasis on you. I can barter with God. If I'm good enough, he'll reward me. All this is saying is that these things are from him. They are a gift. God doesn't do contract work, but he does love to give gifts. The psalm says that happy, this is important for the parents, the people who want to be parents, and we're all children, so it applies to all of us. The psalm says that happy, thriving children are a gift from the Lord. 
As parents, we are called to shepherd them, to steward them, to go after their heart. Your children's heart are the most significant thing that they possess. My son turned 12 yesterday, my oldest. And this week we have had some incredibly important conversations about the heart of a young man as he grows up. What does it mean for me to be his father and to steward him and to shepherd him so that he protects his heart? the greatest entity that he possesses, the most beautiful thing that God has given him, his soul and his heart. Man, what we put through our eyes and the things that we do with our hands, this is the thing that distorts or transforms who we are at the core. As parents, we are given the task of stewarding our children, but the reality is at some point in the storyline, you say to yourself, I'm not enough. Parents, can I get an amen? I'm not enough for you. I can't fix your life. I can't even guide your life. I mean, I'm going to do my best to kind of steward you and push you forward and promote you. I got him an electric guitar. How cool are we, right? We got him an electric guitar for his 12th birthday. I'm going to help you become a rock star so you can help your papa late in life. I'm going to do everything I can to propel you forward. But the reality is I can't transform your mind. I can't transform your heart unless the Lord builds the life of my children. All of my parenting parents is in vain. The connection between the first part of the psalm, which for so long was confusing, says, unless the Lord builds the house, I'm thinking to myself, projects, work. But then it goes, unless you let the Lord build your house, your family, all of it's futile as well. Right? Unless the Lord enters into the lives of our children, unless they walk with him, all our watching is in vain because we are not enough. And that's good news because there's always good news coming, right? What does God say? He is enough. The spirit of restlessness, all different types of it. What comes to mind is we have taken you through the first part of this. What does anxiety feel like in your life? What are you mulling on? What are those areas of life where you go, man, I have so much anxious toil. Let's see if we can remedy some of that or at least put some gospel into some of that in the, first, in the second half. So the spirit of restlessness, part one, and the gift of rest, part two. Look at verse one if you've got it in front of you. Verse one again, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, I'm thankful that the remedy for restlessness actually isn't buckling down and doing more work. We see that in verse 2. It says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Almost all of you, there's a few over here, probably not, almost all of you are hard workers, deeply committed to your work. No, 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 no harm over here, all right? We work hard, and you push hard, and going to bed late, or getting up early for work may be commonplace for you, but let me just relieve the pressure. That is not what is at stake in Psalm 127. What's actually at stake is the diet. It's what you feast on. It's what you eat. It's not your breakfast, but your spiritual food. It says, is it the bread of restless, anxious toil? Because if that's your feast, if that's your breakfast, if that's what you're eating at night and in the morning, that's not God's plan for you. He doesn't want that for you. He's not going to put that pressure on you. He has a gift of sleep. And I think it's literal, but we're going to also talk about it figuratively as well. As a Christian, how does our faith, how does our understanding of Jesus recalibrate and reorder all of that restless energy towards a new ambition and a new end? James Smith says it like this. 
He says the alternative to disordered ambition that ultimately disappoints is not some holy lethargy or pious passivity. It's recalibrated ambition that inspires for a different end and does so for different reasons. In other words, we're not just asking you to sit around and be non-achievers. But we're saying pay attention to what's going on deeper in your heart and in your soul and in those ambitions. Second question has to be, is there a mechanism within Christianity, that uh, the Christian worldview that is designed to help shape and form this type of recalibration within your heart and within our community? And the answer is yes. And Psalm 127 hints at it when, he's, when it says, he gives to his beloved sleep, divine rest. And is there a, na- a name for divine rest in the scripture? It's called Sabbath. I want to talk about that for a moment. Sabbath is the idea that all of your earning, all of your proving, all of your working is supposed to give way to resting one day in seven. That's the basic understanding of Sabbath. All of your working, all of your proving, all of your earning, all of that's supposed to give way to resting one day in seven. And the word Sabbath in Hebrew literally means to stop. That's what it means. Shabbat. Stop. Cease and desist. And you may remember that we're introduced to the concept of Sabbath and the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to a God who works. He works for six days. He's laboring. And then he always takes some time at the end of each day to give an observation. But then he reserves the seventh day out of the week to be able to stop fully and enjoy. And it's not as if he needed to catch his breath. It's that he wanted to let his heart breathe. He wanted to smile. He wanted to enjoy. He wanted to delight. For so many of us, when we think about the Christian concept of Sabbath, it feels like a rule and a regulation. It's supposed to be a holiday one day in seven. It's supposed to be the highlight of your week. You're supposed to be thinking to yourself, I get to stop earning, proving, and working. Our family's going to have so much fun. We're going to have popcorn. We're going to have ice cream. We're going to say some prayers. We're going to enjoy what God has given to us. None of us, almost none of us, including me and my family, think about Sabbath in those terms as essentially a weekly vacation to stop. But could it be that this is why we limp and are exhausted and are overworked and taxed and depleted as we crawl into Monday? It's interesting that when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments in the two places, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, there is only one spiritual formation practice that is included in the Ten Commandments. And if you've been around Christianity, you might say, well, it's probably going to be like Bible reading or prayer or going to church. None of those are included. He uniquely includes in the Fourth Commandment, observe and remember the Sabbath. The Sabbath practice is the only Christian practice included in the Ten Commandments. And the reason is because God is saying you were made for this rhythm of work and rest. And as a philosopher, H.H. Farmer has said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. And I think that is why we feel so depleted. We've forgotten what soul rest looks like. This is not an attribute or a virtue that's encouraged. Keep pushing, keep moving, man, get in the left lane and go. But we have a difficult time catching up with our souls. And Sabbath allows you to slow down. If you go to the creation story, it's also unique that the word blessing is only used three times. God blesses three things in those seven days. And the three things are number one, God blesses the animal kingdom, God blesses humanity, and God blesses a day. 
God blesses the Sabbath. Those three things when he creates the world. And as one writer put it, what does this mean? It means that the Sabbath, just like an animal and just like a human being, has a life-giving capacity to procreate. In other words, this day breathes life into humanity. Resting gives life. The Sabbath is a day of life-giving capacity. It's not pietistic drudgery. It's not a relic from the past. It's not even a tradition for tradition's sake. It is a gift of rest that counteracts and in time reshapes the restlessness that we feel in our souls the rest of those six days. Mark Buchanan again. He says, sleep is a necessity, but it's also a relinquishment. It is self-abandonment of control, of power, of consciousness, of identity. I mean, think about how vulnerable you are. The largest of men in this room, when you lay down, man, you're just a little baby, right? You're just a little baby. You got a young Jew over here, man. You're just a little baby when you lay down, all right? This big strapping man. I come in and take advantage of him. I do whatever I want to young, right? But the reality is, right, you relinquish all things. You relinquish power. In some senses, consciousness, you have to submit and allow God to refuel your body and to allow it to rest. Sleep is a necessity, but it's also a relinquishment. It's a self-abandonment of control, of power, of consciousness, of identity. We direct nothing in our sleep. We master nothing. In sleep, we become infants again, utterly vulnerable, completely defenseless, totally dependent. We sleep simply because we believe God will look after us. It's the same with Sabbath rest. Let's talk about our hearts. Real Sabbath, the kind that empties and fills us, depends on complete confidence and trust. And confidence and trust like that are rooted in a deep conviction that God is good and God is sovereign. There's no rest for those who do not believe that. And when you look at the bigger biblical picture, it starts with the day, but in the Bible, Sabbath is not just the day. And you get to the pages of the New Testament, Sabbath is actually transformed into a person. When Jesus is having a conversation with a group of Pharisees, Jesus has the audacity to say about himself, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He goes, you thought it was about a day. You thought it was about one in seven. He goes, it's actually about a relationship with me. To know me is to know rest. To know me is to know the end of toil. To know me is the end of all of those late nights and early mornings where you are striving for purpose, identity, and meaning. I am the Lord of Sabbath. What does that even mean? Well, it means that he's the God of rest. It means that he's not a slave driver. It also means that he is taking care of all of that restless toil, friends, the work underneath the work. You know what I'm saying? The stuff that's driving all of your working. He has taken care of all of that. The proving, the accomplishment, the earning, the identity and definition stuff. It has all been secured when Jesus cried out on the cross. It is finished. What does that mean? It is finished. Well, certainly all of your Sins have been forgiven. All of your anxious attempts to define your life apart from Jesus have been atoned for. Jesus has lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He's died the, the death that you deserve to die. Because of that, we are legally considered righteous in his eyes. And because we're righteous, we're welcomed into his family. Think about the dynamics of what that even means. All of that stuff is finished. But when Jesus says it's finished, he's also clarifying, you are not enough. You are not enough. I am building this house. I am enough for you. 
bring me into the controlling orbit of your life, index your heart towards me, and to begin to experience the joy of Sabbath in a way that believes the refrain of the gospel that says, in him, when you're connected to him, there is now no condemnation for anybody who's in Christ Jesus. It's all gone. That all the restlessness is gone. It's finished. You're not enough. I'm enough. I am building this house. Unless the Lord builds it, the builder labors in vain. That's the good news of Christianity. It's not on you. It's on him. He has embraced that. No more restless wandering. How come? Because he gives to his beloved sleep. Or as Jesus would say, the Sabbath was made for you. I have come for you. Three points of emphasis at the end here. God's desire is that you would cry out for soul rest and that you would find it in Jesus. And he does give us a practice, doesn't he? And you get to experience it seven days a week, the reality of relationship with the true and living God. Rest is yours 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But he does give us specific times and places for us to stop rest and resist. I'm going to take you through three R's. Number one, we're going to look at relishing, resisting, and resting. This is what Sabbath rest is all about. Relishing, resisting, and resting. We get to relish in God. When you think about God or your faith or church or family, do you think relish? Do you think like, man, joy and delight? God wants to reintroduce you to what that means. Real celebration of God's delight. This is a day intended, as I said, to be the highlight of your week. Secondly, resisting. Resistance in the Sabbath. One writer says the Sabbath is like guerrilla, as a guerrilla warfare tactic. If you want to break free from the oppressive yoke of Egypt or America's taskmasters and its restless, relentless lust for more, just take a day each week and stick it to the man. Don't buy, don't sell, don't shop, don't surf the web, don't read a magazine, just put all that away and enjoy Drink deeply from the well of ordinary life, a meal with friends, time with family, a walk in the forest, afternoon tea. Above all, slow down long enough to enjoy life with God who offers everything that materialism promises but can never deliver on. Resistance is part of Sabbath. No, he's enough for me. So I say no to certain things because he's enough for me. Rest comes from him. And then lastly, rest. It's not simply a day off. Sabbath is not simply a day off. I love a day off with my wife. We have date day, but it's busy. We're going places. We're doing things. We're trying new flavors. We're going to new experiences. We're going to other neighborhoods. That's partly filling my soul, but this is a different type of rest where I say all of the proving, all the ambition, all that stuff, it's got to stop. And I let him fill me back up. What practices would fill you back up? I don't know what they are, but let me just give you one. You ready for this? going to blow your mind. Turn your phone off. Turn your phone off just for a little bit and see how restless you get. I got to go get it. I got to go find it. I got to turn it on. Well, who texted me? Who messaged me? Turn it off just for a moment. Turn off your devices for a moment and see what happens in your soul. Allow yourself to breathe again and above all, celebrate who this God is. I'm going to end with this. A reminder that the Old Testament Sabbath, when it was given, when God said, practice Sabbath, you know when it began? It began at sundown. Isn't that cool? Sundown to sundown. 
That was Sabbath. In other words, God goes, I want you to rest. And you know how you begin? You're not going to work for it. I'm going to lay you down to sleep. I'm just going to let you rest. And isn't that an incredible picture of the gospel? He goes, you don't have to work for rest. You get to work from rest. Jesus has accomplished all of it for you. You get to say, it's finished. All the work underneath the work is done. I'm crying out for it. And he goes, I want to give it to you. I want to give it to you. Work in this world, all the places that God has sent you, all the amazing things that you put your hand and mind to, all of those things, work from rest, not for it. And it will change the way you live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being in this Old Testament beautiful poem where the writer Solomon comes and he thinks about rest and he thinks about work and he thinks about what it takes to accomplish something substantial and he realizes that if you're real, then you've got to be at the center of it. One of the most powerful, influential, wealthy men who ever lived said, unless the Lord builds this thing, it's all vanity. Either it's all about me and I'm not enough or it's just not going to pan out. It's not going to impact the kingdom. It's not a part of what God's doing. Or we want to know what you're up to because you're just so good. You're not here to manipulate us or control us. You're here to love us, to redeem us, to restore us. We have so many competing definitions of what Christianity is about. I pray there'd be some clarity for many in the room today that we're not at the center of Christianity. It's not about our practices. It's not about showing up week after week to church, even though that is a healthy, good practice. That doesn't earn more of your love. You have earned it all on the cross when you took our place. And to know you is to know the God of Sabbath, is to know the God of rest. So help us to be a community that lives like that and then moves out today from rest, from grace, from mercy into our world that needs it. Meet each of us as we sing these last songs. Tune our hearts to sing for you. Give us rest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.